Welcome back to the Junkyard Pod. I'm your host, Tony Pesta, alongside Jackson Flickinger, and today we have both members of the Cavaliers Basketball Club, Colin and Adam. Welcome to the show, guys. How are you doing? We're good. Doing great. <laughs> uh, <laughs> very happy to have you guys on, especially after that win, because this episode could have been a lot darker if the Cavs had lost on Tuesday. <laughs> the Cavs avoided an 0-2 deficit, taking care of business with a dominant win against the Knicks to tie the series up, heading back to New York. Cavs did just what they have done all season long, playing crushing defense, limiting New York to just 90 points on 36% shooting from the floor, their second lowest game scoring game of the season. I'll start by handing this one over to Colin. What stood out to you most about the Cavaliers' defense in Game 2? Well, I think that they they've did what they've always been doing, which is they really made sure that people, the opponent, really understood and felt their presence on the defensive end. And I saw that, you know, they were doing that in the first game as well. They were doing it with Brunson and Randall in the sense of, you know, making sure that Coro was staying on Brunson and, and shadowing him and whatnot. But I saw it throughout the entire game in this, in with even the bench players with the Knicks this time, where I kind of noted how, the uh, they made Hartenstein feel uncomfortable, which I really love seeing. I was kind of frustrated in game one because it seemed like Allen and Mobley were kind of okay with Hartenstein having space and letting him operate. And we know that he's a solid passer and their bench in the first game really killed us. And in the second game, they really were bodying up on bodying up on Hartenstein. And then he's not a bench player, but he doesn't uh, he's not like a sole contributor offensively for the Knicks. And that's uh, Robinson, their center. They did a similar thing where even when Robinson was getting rebounds occasionally, Allen or Mobley or whoever was in the paint was, you know, swiping on his hands, trying to get steals because they understood that these are two guys who are not super comfortable having the ball in their hands. And so I really liked that they got the memo that they needed to make everyone feel uncomfortable, not just the star players on the Knicks. So that's, those were some of the things that stood out for me. Yeah. The physicality was, was definitely very different in game two compared to game one. I think the Cavs did a great job of really from the jump, making their presence known, as you mentioned, uh, putting a body on Robinson and Hartenstein, not allowing him to really be a hub offensively, didn't even really let him get his floater shot. That is kind of like his go-to thing. I, th- I felt like they just did a great job of taking away New York's primary options and making them dig deeper into the rotation. Uh, Adam, how did you feel about the Cavs defense? Have you been satisfied with how they have defended in this series so far? Well, absolutely. After game two, I feel a lot better. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, I went to game one. So uh, being there and seeing it firsthand, um, I was pretty dejected. The fact that we came out really slow, never really had the pace of the game. Um, and defensively, we're the best team in the league. And yet we came out playing like maybe in the top 20. Um, we just kind of let them dictate all of their spots, get to their locations whenever they wanted to. Uh, we were very concerned about, um, sorry, I'm blanking on his name. Uh, we were very concerned about Julius Randle. Um, because obviously he was going to be coming back from injury and he did have a great first half. I thought they did a great job adjusting in the first game for the second game, basically everything they needed to do in the first game, they were able to do. Um, 
They they got their stops when they needed to. They actually got a run on offense for once, which was nice once they got that defensive stop in the second quarter. Um, and that's when they went on their uh, 34 to 17 second quarter. So overall, I think it was just nice to see them play their style of basketball, what they've been able to um, be successful on all year. And uh, given the fact that there have been a team that has started slow out of the gate all year long, I'm not surprised that they started slow out of the gate for the series. It was just nice to see them, you know, right the ship uh, for game two. And hopefully they'll do this, you know, similar things coming into game three. That's a great point that uh, this team, for whatever reason, has had moments where they're just a little slow out the gate, but they definitely brought it in game two, especially against Julius Randle and Jalen Brunson. They've done a very good job on those two. Uh, Randle for the series is now shooting 15 of 40, which isn't great. Uh, 11 turnovers, just five assists uh, for Randle. And Brunson, even though he did have a very good uh, game one, he is shooting 16 of 41 in this series. So they've done a great job on them. Jackson, how do you feel about the defense on Randall and Brunson? Um, so I thought that the Cavs, like initially, I thought the Cavs had an okay uh, defensive game in game one. They just led a bunch of offensive rebounds, but kind of diving in a little bit mm-hmm. deeper kind of shows that, the Cavs really just struggled when um, when Brunson was on the floor. Uh, Brunson was in foul trouble in the first half so of game one, so he wasn't really out there. And when Brunson wasn't out there, the Knicks posted an 82.1 offensive rating in those 19 minutes, which is very bad. But then they posted a 123.2 offensive rating in the 29 minutes he was out there, which is very good. And I was like, well, maybe they got more offensive rebounds when, you know, for whatever reason, when Brunson was out there. But no, they actually got much more when Brunson wasn't out there. So that kind of really shows that, you know, they were only really in that game because of Brunson being in foul trouble and they were able to keep pace with how bad their offense was. But in game two, I thought they did a really good job of taking Brunson away. And it's really, you know it's really kind of surprising that they were able to do that without Isaac Okoro. Um, you know, Isaac Okoro is the best man defender on this team, the best perimeter defender, but their ability to trap Brunson and him being uncomfortable in those situations was really um, like really turned the whole game around. And I think even turned the whole series around, honestly, because mm-hmm. what we saw is, you know, you sometimes see guys like Donovan Mitchell, they've tried to trap drop trapped Donovan Mitchell throughout this series. And when they do, Donovan's kind of like accepting of it and still trying to exploit it in some way. Whereas like Brunson was just trying to get rid of it as soon as he possibly could when he saw Allen coming up. And then that leaves the ball in Julius Randle's hand. That leaves the ball in, you know, Quickly's hand, somebody else. And they just weren't ready to really, you know, do anything with the ball. And that's, mm-hmm. That's what turned the series around, and I really like I liked what what Adam was saying about like the physicality and stuff like that because the Cavs were just swarming around in Game Two because that's what you have to do whenever you trap because you have to you know you have to run around and try to make up for that, and that's where we saw like Darius Garland really you know digging in on on that end. You saw all the you know Jetty, Danny Green. You know, all the uh, Karis, Karis LeVert, just really doing a good job of just being active and seeming like there are more places than they actually are. And I feel like that's what really turned this around. And I don't 
I don't know what uh, the Knicks are going to do to kind of counter that. I don't know, you know, they don't they don't have a lot of other ball handlers that I feel really com- that I would feel comfortable with if I was, you know, a Knicks fan with the, you know, I don't feel comfortable with, you know, Julius Randle. He's somebody who, you know, Tony pointed out his 11, 11 turnovers. He's not somebody who's really comfortable, you know, playmaking. He's somebody who's really deliberate, I think, and he's kind of slow and just kind of tries to bully people. And that's not really what, you know, you need when you're looking at like a four on three situation coming off of a trap. So that's, I don't know what, I don't know what the Knicks are going to do. I think if I was, if I was to guess, I think they're going to try to put Julius Randle in those pick and rolls to kind of try to get him going towards the basket and then maybe trying to set him up that way. But I, I really don't know what the Knicks counter is here. And that's, that's kind of what I'm most interested in. Yeah. It was very much a team effort on uh, Randall and Brunson to stop them in game two. I think, especially with the trapping of Brunson, the Cavs were basically like, we're going to get the ball out of your hands because we're fine with RJ Barrett, Quentin Grimes, Obi Toppin trying to make a play out of this. And as Jackson mentioned, Brunson was really just kind of accepting the trap and getting the ball out of his hands as soon as he could. Uh, It felt like New York wasn't expecting or fully prepared for the Cavs to be as aggressive on defense as they were. It really was just a swarming, send everyone at Brunson, uh, pack the paint when Randall has the ball, force him to shoot jumpers, and really take away any of the Knicks' go-to baskets. I mean, they had just 38 points in the paint, which is very low for a Knicks team. I, I think they averaged about 54 points in the paint, if I recall, so well below their average. Uh, mm-hmm. Cavs forced 14 turnovers in the first half, which is more than all of game one. And again, I think that's just because the Knicks were not expecting an aggressive approach like that where the Cavs just swarmed their ball handlers and tried to force someone else to get involved. And again, as Jackson mentioned, if I'm the Cavs, I feel comfortable with Barrett trying to beat you because I think up to this point, he has shown that he is not that type of player. And so it's going to come down to can Brunson and Randall make adjustments and beat this Cavs defense, which I don't think you can with one or two players going ISO ball. And that's what the Knicks have done all season is they're a very ISO heavy team. They rank near the bottom of the league in assists per 100 possessions. And so you're just going to have to hope those guys get hot. And now to their credit, they have proven that they can do enough to beat you in game one. Mm-hmm. The offensive rebounding is obviously huge. And that leads me to what I want to talk about next is again, with the team effort thing, the Cavs did a very good job on the class in this game. They won the rebounding battle after really having their backs broken in game one. Uh, Adam, I'll flip this one over to you. How did you feel about the rebounding effort from the Cavs in game two, as opposed to game one? Well, obviously it was a much better um, offensive side of the ball effort because we gave up far too many offensive rebounds in the game one. Um, It was the most frustrating thing sitting there in the stands and watching it happen. I just want to dive on the court and get one for them. Um, (laughs) But yeah, the fact that we were able to out-rebound them, I think that's the first time all season that we out-rebounded the Knicks in in a game, in a matchup. I think um, it might have been, yeah. Yeah, and um, really, it's it's certainly one of the um, standout statistics of the night. But even going back to what you mentioned at the end of the defensive topic, just the fact that we had 26 to their 16 assists um, mm. really sticks out to me as well because not only were we flowing in our offense, but we got their offense to fall apart. Um, so I just wanted to mention that just from before our conversation. Yeah. Um, but no, the rebounds, 
kind of all year long, something that Colin and I have talked about is who do you have to rebound a ball beyond Mobley and Allen? Now, great that we have those two guys. You know, nothing to complain there. But when one of them has to sit out, um, it takes, you know, an Akuro or a Stevens or a, um, I'm blanking on uh, Levert. Um, you know, it takes certain players to step up and go after those loose balls when we just don't have the size out there to compensate. And that was a concern since the, the Knicks guys are large and, and pretty big in their, their weight class. Um, I, I really didn't think we'd out-rebound them in a single game. So the fact that that was a part of the statistic that helped us kind of handedly beat them in game two. Um, I'm excited. I'm hoping that we can continue to be aggressive and match up with them more on that side. Um, simply because if Allen and Mobley are having off nights, I think that we're a team that has to make its shots because we're just not going to be able to um, get a lot of second chances. So. Yeah, I actually agree 100% with you. Uh, entering the series when we were doing our previews and everyone was highlighting rebounding as a concern, of course it was a concern, but I was on record saying like, hey, even if the Cavs don't win the rebounding battle, they really just need to make sure they don't get crushed. Because yeah. in my opinion, they're the more talented team, and that's me trying to be objective, not just being a Cavs fan. I do think they have the high-end talent to win the series, and the only, not the only, but probably the best way for New York to uh, overcome that and win is to absolutely obliterate them on the margins in terms of second chance points, limiting yes. turnovers and all of those things. And so it was great to see the Cavs really scrap together after game one. Garland had zero rebounds in the first game. He had three in game two. Jetty chipped in with six rebounds. Levert and Danny Green had four. Mitchell had two. And Allen had six offensive rebounds, which just shows how he has been active on the glass this entire series. Uh, I think those two really got a lot of undeserved blame in game one. Not saying that they were perfect by any means, but, you know, it, it felt like they did their job and the rest of the Cavs kind of dropped the ball. You know, it's, I, they just weren't ready. I agree because when I was there, um, that's all I could see was these guys were scrapping mm -hmm. for everything and doing everything they could to fill their position, but everybody else was standing around watching. Um, and I think in game two, they did a better job of uh, knowing that they had to be the aggressive team. Uh, whereas the Knicks just did a much better job of it in game one. Definitely. There were so many plays underneath the rim where, you know, Allen has it, Robinson has it, they're fighting for it. And then, uh, you know, Donovan Mitchell comes in and slaps it out or Levert yeah. comes in and gets a hand on it. And it's yeah. like, that's what you need if you're going to win that battle. Uh, Colin, how did you feel about the Cavs rebounding effort and really just their effort as a team? I feel like the physicality was just so much better. Even Darius Garland, really getting active and physical in that game. Yeah, we mentioned in our uh, previous episode around game one how it really was an effort thing that they they lost the game, game one for other reasons, but in two, they increased their effort le level and they were able to get the win. And that was because of guys like Levert. That was because of Jetty. And, you know, Jetty is maybe... He is a fan favorite because of his effort. He is one of those guys that, you know, kind of brings the uh, Anderson Barajau level of effort where the, the Della Vadova effort where he's going to get in there and do whatever he can to to fight for the ball or, or to get, you know, a basket or to get a rebound. And that was the thing that was just so impressive is clearly the coaching staff said, 
hey, we really we need you to do what you're closer to what you were saying there, Tony, with you you can't be ha, you can't let the offensive rebounding, you can't let the rebounding be that far apart. It needs to be closer to even because that really is the Knicks bread and butter. They're not the greatest shooting team. And that's what they rely on. It's why they traded and got Josh Hart, because Josh Hart is also a really good rebounder. They didn't get him for his shooting prowess. They got him because he can get the ball for when everybody else starts missing on the Knicks. And so it was just really good to see that, as you mentioned, everybody was kind of boxing out and scrapping. As far as Garland, Garland, you know, Darius Garland is a team is, is a guy that Adam and I have always loved. He was definitely a guy that was counted out defensively. And the fact that he had a game in the playoffs where you really he kind of put a defensive stamp on that game. Like people aren't going to talk about it because of the amount of threes that he put up and and the his scoring output, but really his defense was what kind of turned the tide in that game. And he he also he drew that trap that <clears throat> sorry, he drew that charge uh, in the first mm -hmm. half that I think really helped kind of rally the crowd a little bit. And it showed the rest of the team, hey, Darius and everybody, this is what we need to do. We need to fight this hard, draw charges, get in people's faces. And I kind of loved that I was never really scared or worried when Darius was manning up on any of these Knicks players because I think he can handle Brunson quickly is a really great talent, but I think Darius can do enough to stay in front of him to force him to, you know, get into a trap or get rid of the ball. So I, it was really, that was a big surprise was to see that Darius not only was there that scoring output, but he was putting a defensive stamp on a game in, in the playoffs. I really like that you brought up Darius in that, in that way, because I think it's really interesting that like I feel like trapping the Knicks like they like they were whenever you trap, you know, everyone else has to be super involved and rotating and, you know, super aware. And I feel like Darius was and that kind of helped him stay aggressive on both ends. It felt like he was just kind of playing with his hair on fire as opposed to kind of just like sitting back and trying to, you know, a lot of what Darius does is because like teams, you know, try to hunt him, try to get a mismatch on him. So it seems like he spends a lot of time on the defensive end trying to just avoid that switch as opposed to just being aggressive and like playing offense on defense, if that makes sense. And I feel like that's kind of what we got. And that that kind of mindset that Darius had, I feel like just translated over to everything the Cavs were doing on the defensive end. And that translated over to rebounds. Everyone was just like super active and that's kind of what you need to do when you have a team that's going to be going you know sending all five guys to get to get rebounds and it it also helps that the offense wasn't a complete grind because i feel like sometimes when the offense is a complete grind your mindset is like i don't really want to do the extra effort to go in and get this rebound after 40 minutes and that's you know not you know that's how you get into the situation the Cavs were in game one so i, I just think it was just like a complete buy-in and it kind of started with darius yeah, and when Definitely. you play that, sorry, Tony, uh, when you play you that level of, of defense, you uh, make the other team so dejected that it makes it a little easier to go to the other side of the ball and stop them because they don't, they're not feeling themselves. They don't think that they can do it. You've been shutting them down the entire game. Mm -hmm. 
And I wanted to mention one other thing just to, uh, we like to give props to JB as often as we can. One of the things that I've loved about the Cavs since he took over is their defensive effort in general. We've been one of the best defensive teams in the league, whether we're a good team or not. And the fact that um, after the game, I saw a quick little video shot into the locker room and he was addressing the team. And that was the first thing he said, tonight you played defense. That's the right way to do it. You know, and the fact that even though this is an offensive heavy um, league and everybody loves that side of the game, the fact that the Cavs know which side of the, the bread they need to butter, right? That mm-hmm. if they can just lock down defensively, they've got a real shot at this. And, um, and I've got to give all the credit in the world to JB and his staff for making that priority one from the moment he got there. One of the things that I think me and Tony were a little frustrated with, it felt like JB was like a step slow, especially on the offensive end in game one. It felt like, like this team wasn't prepared for Darius getting trapped. And it's like, guys, like this is what teams do uh, every Mm -hmm. time, especially like last year when there was no other ball handler really besides Rondo, which it's crazy when you look back at the box score, you're like Rondo played 32 minutes. Like, wow. Like I I blocked that out of my memory. Yes. Um, For many reasons. Yes. (laughs) Um, But one of the things that I feel like what the Cavs, I feel like the kind of the game plan was like, all right, coming into the series, we're going to let Isaac just kind of be the guy on Brunson. And then it kind of became apparent that with the way game one was going, that like we just can't have Isaac out here because of the offensive side is just too tough. And then, you know, switching Jetty in the game, Jetty, I thought, like, I, I really think Jetty did as good of a job as he could on Brunson, but Brunson was still able to create way more space against Jetty on those, on those jumpers than he is against you know, Isaac. So the adjustment of just blitzing him kind of makes whoever the man defender is kind of void because it's like, he's going to be seeing bodies. And I think that's just a really good adjustment that uh, JB did. So glad that, glad that you brought that up because I feel like we might not, you know, because of how frustrated we were with game one, me and um, Tony were that we might, you know, forgot about that. Well, and I'll, I'll say one final thing and then I'll, I'll be quiet for a minute. Um, that's another thing too, that frustrated us both about game one is, and really what we've seen from JB in the play-in last year are the rotations I'm like, okay, that's not working. What else do you have? And for me, I've been watching the game since I was a little boy. It's frustrating to see only maybe seven or eight guys play in general. Um, but I was just very happy to see him go to a different, um, idea for game two. And the fact that Jetty got out there, Danny Green got out there. Um, it really, that was very exciting. The fact that we were seeing those players out, not at the end of the game, but at the beginning of the game contributing. So it's also just so wild that Danny green played with all the five starters. And most minutes he played with anybody was 17 minutes all season. And he's been (laughs) on the team since February and Jetty played 44 minutes this whole season with the core four and played 12 in game one. So it's just like. That's where I'm just like, yeah. JB, like we got to expand the rotations <laughs> yeah. for some of these games. And Danny, we Green's, don't wanna, yeah. <laughs> Danny Green's played 160 games in the playoffs in his career. So I was just happy to see him actually bring a veteran out on the court that can help them kind of discern what they're looking at. So many people on our team have never been here before. Yeah. It was nice to have him out there since, you know, Kevin Love left. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, don't don't get us started on Kevin Love. Uh, we'll be not. here all day. Yeah. But uh, yeah, me and Jackson, I think shared a lot of the same concerns when it comes to JB. We have always 
giving him his flowers in terms of definitely his defense and uh, just the identity he's helped create for this team. His offense at times can be a little, you know, it, it's kind of hard to judge too difficult because we, we don't know exactly what's going on in, in terms of what JB is telling them to do. Sometimes Donovan Mitchell goes hero mode and like, sometimes I love it. And most of the time I love it. But the one yeah. thing that me and Jackson have always had concerns about is just kind of his rotations. And I think he has been very quick to yank people off the floor in the playoffs. And I've loved it. Even when it's someone like Isaac Coro, who I have hoped and prayed that he would have his little debut in the playoffs and it has not gone as planned, but he gets into foul trouble early in game two, JB pulls him, puts Jetty in. And even when Jetty is, you know, kind of getting burned by Brunson. I mean, I didn't want him to guard Brunson again, despite the fact that he did such a good job in game one. I was like, let's not play with fire here. I was a little frustrated at the start of game two when Brunson seemed like he was cooking him. And then Mm -hmm. the Cavs started deploying their traps. And uh, Jackson brought up the great points. Like, it almost doesn't matter who's guarding him at start because they're going to be throwing multiple bodies at him. And that's just what JB has done so brilliantly all year long is make a team work on the offensive end. It is very difficult to score on the Cavs. And it's so funny because the Cavs have been winning these games all year long that just feel like slogs where neither team is scoring. The Cavs are like no one on the floor can shoot. It's the most rough looking offense you've ever seen. They keep pulling out these games. And even in this game, it feels like the Cavs kind of broke free and we're shooting much better than we are used to. And they scored 107 points, which isn't (laughs) that much. Mm -hmm. But New York only scored 90. And so it's like, this is just what the Cavs have been doing all year long. And it was one reason why I felt weirdly optimistic about their chances in the playoffs because things get weird in the playoffs. And if you have a team that can win these weird games where no one's scoring and they've proven they can do it all year, that's kind of a good thing to have. Um, Just to uh, talk about the guy who I think everyone was most excited about in this game, and we mentioned his efforts on the defensive end, but I think it's a good time to move into what Darius Garland did on the offensive end. He really got himself going in this game, and I think much of that has to do with JB's adjustments uh, in terms of how the Cavs approach offense. Garland scored 26 points in the first half. That's a career high for DG. Uh, Established himself on all areas of the floor. He's drilling three-pointers. He got to the line 11 times in the first half. Uh, Colin, what did you see from Darius Garland in that, just in the game in general? I think that Darius was also given the keys to the offense a little bit more in this game. I think that he and Donovan, I know that Donovan and he talk a lot and, and in our podcast, we talk about Donovan Mitchell, I think probably every five minutes, just because he's been such a a key reason why the Cavs have had such great success this year. And I think that clearly the two guards, along with the coaching staff, realized that if they started putting the guards in, you know, pick and rolls and using Levert and Donovan and some of these uh, screens and whatnot and some of these actions that, uh, the Darius DG would actually get more open shots than uh, what he was getting in the previous game. And not only did we see that he was shooting from three, I mean, he shot uh, what they was double digit attempts for uh, the first time in a while. I think um, uh, he hadn't shot that many attempts in, since like uh, mid-March and he really hasn't had like a, a game with that many points in a long time. I think since, uh, like you mentioned earlier in the year, and and I know since probably around February. 
And so, so Darius really offensively was just comfortable. Then you could tell that the coaching staff needed, they did a good job of saying, we got to figure out how to make him comfortable because then once you get Darius comfortable, then he becomes a little more assertive. Some of the passes, the, the no look passes he was doing down into the post were because he had already hit a few shots from the outside and had had his floater game there. And that was really helpful. We, we just went on this, little discussion about JB and and giving him his flowers. Clearly the offensive uh, coaches said, we just got to make sure we execute better and figure out how to get him some space. Because when Darius has space, we've always heard about how Darius, and we've seen it in some games, he can shoot, you know, Steph Curry level from the outside. I mean, he's, not doing the weird trick shots uh, before pregame, but he is shooting 35 feet. You know, he's shooting way out there. And it's one of the prettiest shots that I think I've seen from a Cavalier in a long time. And when it's on, I, I you don't even need to look at whether or not it'll go in. So I think that they just realize that this team needs to have Darius be the second best player on the floor to win the series. It's got to be Donovan, then Darius, and then, you know, maybe you throw in one of the Knicks players and then Mobley, but they really need to establish Darius. And that's what you saw. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, you know, uh, as we said, JB's uh, adjustments on defense were great, but that's what we've come to expect from him. Seeing a major adjustment like this in the playoffs was very encouraging for me and kind of just solidified in my mind that JB is ready for this moment. Uh, he really has uh, throughout – it's only two games, so I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but game two was very impressive uh, from JB, in my opinion. His efforts to get Garland going, I think using the guards as screeners was just such a, a an amazing way to get the Knicks really into the action and uncomfortable. You know, Mitchell Robinson – Hartenstein, all the Knicks bigs did such a great job defending in game one in the pick and roll, throwing that size at uh, Garland and, and not really allowing him to get involved. And that's why it devolved so quickly into, hey, Donovan Mitchell, can you just score 38 points for us and go ISO because no one else can get going and you're the only guy capable of doing it. Game two, the Cavs took a way different approach and got the Knicks guards involved, who I really don't think any of them can check Darius Garland I mean Josh Hart's a good defender but we saw pretty quickly how much more comfortable Garland looked in game two uh and one of the biggest takeaways is the fact that he had seven assists in this game compared to just one in game one which really shows to me that he was more comfortable more in rhythm and in the flow of things uh Jackson I know that you wrote about how the Cavs uh needed to adjust the way they were screening what did you see from really the three guard lineup of Levert and Mitchell and Garland all screening for each other and getting involved uh, I think it really works well because one of the things that the Knicks have really tried to do is kind of hide Brunson in a way, but also kind of leave Brunson out of things. And when you, when you're screening like that, first you're getting Brunson involved because, you know, when, because Brunson's playing the worst offensive player of the three guards. So like if you have Mitchell and Garland out there, he's going to be guarding Levert, Osman, whoever. So Getting him involved is one thing because one of the things that you really, really notice when I was, I was looking at this today, just looking at the numbers and 
the Knicks defense has been a lot worse with um with Brunson on the on the floor, and that's you know to be expected. But I think it just kind of shows that like the Cavs have really tried to go out of their way to make him work on that end. And you know what I saw from Darius is Darius was really teams are really going to make Darius beat them because when the alternative is Donovan Mitchell, who is somebody who can, who we know can score 50 plus in any game that he plays in, you know, the bigs they're you know, they can finish on anybody, especially if you let Don, especially if you let Darius kind of rolling downhill. Mm -hmm. So really what you're going to do is let's try to, you know, let's try to trap Darius. Let's try to make him a, um, you know, somebody who's not able to get inside the lane and get the bigs involved and kind of just try to take him out of his game. So kind of putting the ball in Donovan Mitchell's hand, just a little bit more putting the, you know, putting the other guard in screens, things like that. Having Darius shoot the ball because one, because like game one, he only shot four times from deep and it's not that like he, he wasn't really assertive, but he also, he, those looks were there. He should have shot. He could have easily shot six or seven times from deep, but really, really didn't. So just kind of him being aggressive on both ends. I feel like I'm just kind of talking in circles, but you know, <laughs> he was just, he was just aggressive. And I feel like that's all that it kind of comes down to is the best version of Darius Garland is the most aggressive version. And we saw, we were saying that his rookie year when, you know, he would kind of stand back and let Colin do Colin things. And it's like, we need, you to be aggressive because a lot of people, you know, they pass to set up their shot, but really Darius shoots to set up everyone else because when he's shooting, that just opens up the floor for everybody else. And he's the best player on the floor at getting everyone else involved. Mm -hmm. So that's really what, that's really what I like to see. And I want to see him, you know, he was six of 10 from three. I want to see him shoot, you know, I don't want to see him shoot 10 times and miss eight of them, but I would kind of be encouraged if we saw a two for 10 game from three, because that just means that mm -hmm. he's really bought into being aggressive, even if the shot's not going in. So that's, yeah. you know, that's the next step. And hopefully we don't see that this playoffs, but you know, <laughs> at some point yep. that's kind yep. of, that's kind of a barometer to look at. Mm -hmm. Of course, uh, man, we've had a Colin Sexton mention and a Kevin Love mention in the same pod. This is one for the ages, uh, <laughs> but no, I agree with everything you said about Garland. Um, just coming out and shooting, man. I mean, I would go as far as to say that an aggressive Garland is the best version of the Cavs when Garland is kind of setting people up and running the show. And, you know, one of the most interesting things about using the guards to screen for each other is that one of the issues they ran into is when Garland's trapped or Mitchell is doubled, if you're dumping the ball to Mobley or Allen off of that play. Uh, Mobley, you know, he's improved as an offensive creator, but they're not really shot creators. The Knicks, the same way that the Cavs are okay with RJ Barrett or Toppin trying to make a play out of the trap, the Knicks mm -hmm. were okay with Allen or Mobley trying to do that. And the decision-making was a little slow. It just wasn't really there. When you flip that and you have Levert attacking off the catch or Mitchell attacking off the catch, it's just an entirely different beast. And I think it's one reason why Mitchell, you know, it's he had an amazing game one Game two was just as incredible, except he only had 17 points and he only attempted 11 field goals. But he had 13 assists, which really stands out to me. And just how he understood that if the Cavs want to win and get back into the series, it's in, it's way more valuable to them if they can get Garland going. 
they can get Levert going. And I think he really took that on as his responsibility to look for them and get them into the flow of the offense uh, in this one. Adam, how did you feel about Donovan Mitchell's performance in game two? Well, um, I would say I'd have to point out what you already just mentioned, which is that um, probably the best scorer on our team didn't have to score and we handedly beat the Knicks. So that's a wonderful experience when the best player on your team doesn't have to be the best player that night. Now, granted, 13 assists is not nothing. 13 assists is uh, one of my favorite stats because I used to play point guard. So that's I, a point guard that can't average around 10 assists a night is not really a point guard I care about. Um, so and I know that's a pretty large order, but that's that's to me what you should be striving for in the league. Um, something that when we got Mitchell, I thought to myself, oh, you know, it'd be pretty cool if Garland and he could flirt with 10 assists a game. And the fact that in this game combined, they had 20 of the 26 assists. So 13 assists for Mitchell, seven assists for Garland. Um, 20 out of 26 assists coming from your backcourt. That's that's what I want to see every day of the week. Um, and the fact that Mitchell, you know, he doesn't have the Danny Green experience within the playoffs, but he's been here now six years in a row. Um, is that correct? Six or is it five? I think it's six, right? He's for, been in the playoffs every year. Yeah, yeah every yeah. year. This is his yeah. sixth yeah. season. So, yeah. So the the guy is born to be a leader taking teams to the playoffs. And all I've seen since he joined this team is that he brings that to the table. That um, And in some ways, I think even in game one, we were seeing in uh, a flashback of what we saw for many years in the first round of Le the LeBron era, which is that uh, everybody kind of stood around and watched. And uh, Garland did a lot of that in game one, I felt, was kind of watching Mitchell play. And what I loved about what Mitchell did in game two was what he did before the game, was that he pulled Garland aside, they sat and looked at tape, and he said, hey, you know, we are the duo on this team. I need you. You have to have a big night just like me. Um, and that's what he made sure of. He went out in game two and he gave the confidence to Garland to go out and play the kind of game that we were looking for in game one from him. So, and, and just to mention something about Garland from the previous conversation, I will wholeheartedly agree that he should be one of those players that you see him come out in the first three quarters and just press down on the gas as hard as he can. Um, partially because as a player, um, I wonder if he has enough legs to make it all the way until the final into the fourth quarter. A lot of the time he seems gassed. So I don't think of him as a Mr. Fourth quarter in the making. I think of him as a guy like almost Kevin Love was in, uh, in his career here, which is he'd come out in the first, second and third quarter and get most of his points then and help the team pull away before the fourth quarter even began. Um, so that was something that I just thought Mitchell and he both did really well to actually bring to fruition uh, for game two. Yeah, I think that is a good point, because one of the things that you see in the fourth quarter is when like offenses really start slowing down. And whenever like Garland's not somebody who's really comfortable in those like just isolation, I'm going to get a bet like a basket type possessions, whereas that's something that, you know, Donovan Mitchell is much more comfortable. in. so, yeah, right. definitely. You definitely want to see him aggressive early on as opposed to, you know, kind of passive early on. Because if you see him, if he's passive in the first quarter, he's not going to just like turn it on randomly. Right. Or at least and, that's historically how it's been. And that's what we saw in game one when he took one shot in the fourth quarter. It was right. just that's not Darius Garland, you know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I, I kind of wonder with some of that, because I know that um, the folks on the dunker spot, they have kind of, we've given JB a lot of love, but I know that they've uh, been p pretty public in commenting on how frustrating they felt the Cavs offense would be at times. And I, I do wonder, I do agree. I think that Darius definitely needs to press on the gas, but I also wonder if some of that is, we know that the Cavs purposefully, you know, initiate their offense slowly. And that hopefully I think that that will work out for them in the playoffs because they, just the way the pace in the playoffs usually works out is a slower pace. But at the same time, because you're telling your point guard, who's quite young still, Hey, we want to initiate the offense slowly. There's a little bit of like, Oh, so I need to play slow to win. <laughs> it's a little, no, 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 no. We were, you play fast, you win game. Right now. And it's, so <laughs> I think that there's definitely a little bit of, things to learn from how the coaching staff can initiate Darius even more in, in different ways too, because we saw a lot of how he, how the offense moved around to, to kind of um, change around how he was dealing with screens and whatnot. But we also know that he's quite deadly off ball too. So he's a, he is a fantastic shooter. He's their second best shooter. And I'd be curious to see how that, is another wrinkle that they'll probably try to work in and um and getting him off ball and hitting some shots from in that way as well one thing i think that is really interesting is that when you look, kind of look back at darius's time in cleveland you think of him kind of playing with a bunch of lineups that don't have a lot of great spacing i think you know the Cavs core four of allen and mobley I think has more spacing than what people try to give it credit for because just because Allen and Mobley's rim pressure just opens up everything in a certain way. Mm -hmm. But, you know, like when he came in the league, he was running a lot with like Andre Drummond, who's running with, you know, some really bad spacing lineups. And even, you know, even last year with Isaac Okoro kind of, you know, always playing with Isaac Okoro in this year, you know, Okoro starting nothing, nothing against Okoro, but it just, it's always been kind of an uphill battle and that's kind of tough for somebody who's undersized already. So I, I don't think it's too big of a coincidence that like really the game where it feels like he's the most freed up is, you know, the game where he's played basically all of his minutes with, you know, guys like Levert, you know, Osmond green, you know, the Cavs, there were times the Cavs ran, ran lineups of, you know, Garland Mitchell, you know, Osman and green with, with mm -hmm. one big. And that's something that he's never really done throughout his career of just having that much spacing and guys who can move off ball. So I think that's, it's kind of like you want Darius Garland to step up a little bit, but I feel like he was kind of also put in a really good position to show how skilled he really is. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I think, you know, there are so many things that this team has to learn as always with the team entering its first playoff series. And, you know, when we talk about the pace, uh, they do a great job of playing a deliberate slow pace, but there's also many times where you want them to get into their sets a little faster. And that's something where sometimes you have to remember, you know, Darius Garland is still a young guard. He's great. He's already one of the best game generals, you know, uh, just managing the floor, but he has a lot to learn still. And uh, 
I also think that while they can be frustrating at times, and I completely hear any fans who have been frustrated, it's important to remember that they really are very far ahead of schedule still. Uh, don't take for granted how seamlessly Mitchell and Garland have fit together. This could have been mm-hmm. a much more uncomfortable, awkward fit. Something as simple as Mitchell coming out and taking 30 field goal attempts out of necessity in game one, and then you know setting aside with Garland, having that conversation and being like, look, dude, we want you to score. I believe in you. We know you're capable of this. We're going to we're gonna look for you in game two, and you're going to show up, and then it happens. Something as simple as that uh, really shows – so it's just something you can't take for granted because not every superstar is going to do that. And you also won't have a point guard as talented as Darius Garland, who's going to step up and fill that role. So it's really just something that I think it can be frustrating, but you have to be patient and you have to recognize that this is a learning process and they are passing with pretty flying colors, all things considered. Uh, and I have, I have as, a quick comment oh, about that, actually. Yeah. Just, just a quick comment about that since we did bring up Colin Sexton. Um, some, something that, uh, Oh no, sorry. <laughs> so, something that, that Colin and I did talk about recently as well. Uh, cause it kind of popped into my head. It was like, Oh yeah. One of the big open questions for the Cavaliers not that long ago was can a small backcourt work, you know? And did we, did we hear that question all year long? Like, did, did anybody ever ask <laughs> if this small backcourt would work together? So I think that just goes to show that, you know, the, the problems of the past were immediately gone the minute Mitchell came to the team. And um, and you're right. The way that they've gelled together, no one should take that for granted. I think I have, even though I've known better. You know, it's just, yeah, it's been unreal how they've played together. Yeah, I've, I've definitely taken it for granted at times, too. Uh, and it's funny that, that you mentioned, because I do think when we first traded for Mitchell, there was a the question of, can you survive defensively with those two guys out there? Right. Very quickly, that was erased, and all of a sudden, mm-hmm. it was like, okay, well, but can they can sur- can they survive offensively now? Because right. Mitchell and Garland are great, but are the rest of these guys going to step up? And that's a great transition to talk about their supporting cast, the rotation. Uh, the Knicks kind of obliterated the Cavs bench in Game One and Game Two. It was very different. The supporting cast stepped up in all the right ways. Lavert had a huge game off the bench, twenty four points, almost outscoring the Knicks bench all on his own. Uh, I'm not sure how Colin and Adam feel about Levert. Me and Jackson have talked about Levert for hours and hours. Uh, my yeah. view of this is that, hey, game one, you're going to have uh, – that's a Karis Levert game. Game two, <laughs> that's also a Karis Levert game. Like, you're just going to get these random versions of him, and yeah. you don't know which one it's going to be on any given night. If you're lucky, he'll just be kind of middle of the road and and, and kind of just be out there. But you're probably going to get one of the extremes and, you know – Hey, you have a game where Mitchell only takes 11 field goals and Mitch, and then Levert gives you 24 off the bench and you win by double digits like that that has me feeling good but I want to pass this off to Adam or Colin whoever wants to tackle it. How did you Tony. feel about uh Karis Levert's performance? I mean, Tony, that I mean that is just like a, a perfect, you know, example <laughs> of 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 the Karis Levert, you know, just following him. He he is that type of player. He is so up and down. Next game, you're right. He could play six minutes. Game three, he could play six minutes, and everybody's clamoring about, wait, where'd Levert go? And But what I saw at a game two really was more of what we had talked about at the top of the episode, which is that he was putting effort in other ways. He was boxing out. He was chasing down balls. He was really, you know, he was getting rebounds, stuff like that. And you didn't see that in game one. He wasn't 
he and and he also wasn't hijacking the offense, which I thought was great. I think that he did that. That's probably why he got pulled in game one, is there were a few possessions where I'm sure the coaching staff was like, We're only down by four. What are you doing? <laughs> um and they basically in this in, in game two, they clearly let him have a little gave him a better matchup too, because they're those possessions late in the game where he was going against Brunson, I thought were great because it's what we've all kind of talked about and really what Jackson highlighted, which is that Brunson's not a plus defender. He's not a guy that's going to lock anyone down. And I think that you could kind of, you know, you're watching it on TV or I am, but you can just tell from like Levert's body, his body language when he's really in a game and he just loved those possessions where he was man, he was going against Brunson because he he just was like, yep, going to blow by this guy and, you know, get a layup or I'm going to do the, uh, you know, the jumper in the lane. And so I was really happy to see how engaged he was. And I'm hopeful that he'll be engaged for the, the rest of the series. And maybe that is just by doing a couple other actions or, you know, We'll get into a little, we might get into a little bit more, but I think having the threat of Danny Green saying, you know, JB saying, look, we can bring in a guy that just is a pure shooter because that's what we need right now. We need somebody to score. Um, might kind of put some fire under Levert too to know like, oh, that's right. I do maybe have two or three guys now that might come in for me instead of just switching between him and Okoro. Definitely. And I also think having Danny Green and even Jetty out there at times kind of softens whatever game Levert's having. Like if Levert's having a mm -hmm. disaster of a game and you just have someone else out there who <laughs> Jetty isn't the best example to, you know, say will bring order to things. But you could have a Jet. Like uh, game one was an example of Jetty kind of bringing order to things. Uh, yeah. Danny Green, it, it's a question as if he'll be able to maintain uh stay on the floor without getting hunted i would love to uh ask you guys more about that because danny green did make his playoff debut for the Cavs. he was on the court for 20 minutes uh he only drilled one three-pointer but his presence was felt he spaced the floor he acted as a decoy he helped pool help defenders out of the paint which i think also played a role in the Cavs looking better uh on the offensive glass because the knicks weren't just packing the paint they actually had to come out a little bit and guard people and i also think danny green could have taken way more three pointers if the Cavs were used mm -hmm. to having guys who can shoot three pointers. It felt like they missed him. Uh, but I was very encouraged by the Danny Green minutes after being concerned. I think they did a great job of hiding him. Uh, Adam, do you think Danny Green is a guy who can play playoff minutes moving forward? Yeah, we touched on it a little bit earlier. Um, I think a guy that has over 160 games in the playoffs in his career, I think that he knows the score. I think he knows how to go out there and do, do his job. Um, I don't know if 20 minutes is what he's going to see. Um, I think that was because of foul trouble and some other things. Um, but I think 10 minutes a night is perfectly acceptable for somebody like Danny. And even going back to the Levert conversation, you know, one of the, the things that I've been concerned about all season long is that we don't really have a sixth man off the bench. Somebody that I personally trust to come in there and get solid points for us when we need it. And last year we had that with love for a little bit, and maybe it could have been that way this year too, but he was too riddled with injury again. 
Um, and I think Colin and I have always been hoping that Levert would be that. Um, and unfortunately, he just hasn't fit into the schemes of this team the way that we wanted to. Um, Karis Levert, ultimately, uh, because he's so up and down, you have to have somebody like Danny getting in there when you have minutes to fill. And because Kevin Love left the team the way that he did, now we're just kind of missing bodies. And um, he's just somebody that you have to call his number. Uh, and again, because he's got the playoff experience, um, I was very happy to see him out there. I wanted to see him come out in game one. Now, I know that he has injury issues as well, and he's an older player. And as you said, they'll have to hide him occasionally. But I think 10, 15 minutes a night, depending on the matchups and kind of what the Knicks are giving them, makes a lot of sense for a veteran player like Danny. Um, and mostly because I just don't see a lot of uh, consistency beyond the starting five. So mm, definitely agree on all those points. Uh, Colin, were you about to say something? Well, the other thing that I really enjoy about watching Danny Green is he is so savvy, even with the the bum leg. I mean, we know that he's he's trying to run as hard as he can, and it always looks like that he's going to hurt himself running. But when he has the ball in his hand and he's moving around on offense, he's really savvy with getting space for himself. I think yes. better than any of the other wings, even, I mean, Levert is good, but Levert's more in the prime of his career. And I think that there was a play, I believe it was in the, the first half where green had the ball and he uh, uh, got uh, green had the ball and was giving a, a bounce pass to, to Mobley and it, Mobley was able to draw the foul uh, from Hartenstein, but um, Obi Toppin was trying to guard Green and Green had was able to just do like one subtle like move and a half and he would have had enough space for three. He decided not to take it, but it was that ability to create space all of a sudden just with the ball in his hands because he's such a threat from the outside that it, to me it, it seemed like something was clicking where the knicks all of a sudden were like well son of a gun because uh we're not sure how to deal with this guy because he's he adds this, this subtle enough wrinkle offensively that it allows um you can't just stay you have to be more aware of him and that you there were some other plays later in the game too where that happened where um uh, guys were able to finish at the rim get dunks and stuff like that because the you know Toppin or whoever or Hartenstein or or um I believe it was even um Randall they had to be aware of green and so you if he is able to keep that gravity you know, we talked about uh, Adam and I talked about in our um, episode, we talked about how Mitchell has this amazing gravity. And if Green is able to also have a little bit of that gravity for the Cavs, that's just very helpful because the Knicks aren't that great of a defensive team, as, as we've mentioned. Mm -hmm. I think, uh, you know, one of the biggest values of having Danny Green out there and even Jetty at times is just their off-ball movement, their gravity, even if, like, there was a play in the first half with Jetty where Obi Toppin is ignoring him in the corner. He's not even defending him, which is something that happens to a lot of Cavs players, unfortunately. Uh, but rather than just standing there and not being an option, uh, Jetty flares out to the wing, gets an open three-pointer on the kickout from Levert. He misses it, 
But that's a situation where, you know, that could have easily turned into a bad shot from Levert, like a floater or one of those weird kind of mid-range shots that he takes if he didn't have someone to kick it out to. But because Jetty made himself available, now the offense is flowing. It's it's not as stagnant. It doesn't turn into one-on-one ball. And again, the results aren't always the most important thing. Sometimes it's just as simple as having getting a quality look, even if it doesn't go in. And that's something that you don't always get with other members of the Cavs. Uh, again, as I said, I think Danny Green, if his legs don't fall apart and he's able to continue playing 20 minutes a night or even just 10 minutes a night, I think he could play 10 minutes in the next game and attempt six three-pointers with the way that he was getting, you know, moving off ball and getting open. If the Cavs make those adjustments and look for him, uh, he's the exact type of guy you want playing spot minutes in the playoffs because he's he's reliable. He's going to come in. If he's knocking down threes, you can leave him in there. If he's getting burnt defensively, and then you can yank him and put in someone else. But he is exactly the type of guy that this team really needs, uh, and it would just be huge moving forward if he's able to stay on the floor. Uh, Jackson, I know as soon as we mentioned the supporting cast, you've just been chomping at the bit to talk about Jetty Osman, who I mentioned a little bit. He was one for seven in game two, which isn't great, but I still felt like he was a positive impact out there. And so, uh, Jackson... Take it away, man. Talk about your guy. All right. A uh, lot of places <laughs> I could go with this. So, Jetty, I think one of the, you know, Jetty's a really good off-ball mover, but one of the things that I thought he did kind of, that he did well, and you mentioned, is just kind of moving in the space. There were a couple times where he also, you know, people forget he's six, he's six seven. He, you know, he would, he unset a screen for Mitchell, flares out gets the ball, Brunson's closing out hard, and he's able to just go inside and finish over Brunson. So, like, things like that I think kind of get um, ignored a little bit with when we're, when we're talking about Jetty. Is Jetty is somebody who is good. Maybe not good, but he's better than some of the alternatives at, you know, dribbling and getting other guys involved. But one of the things that I kind of wanted to mention going into next game is I think – these role players are going to be really important. You know, if you were the Knicks, I think what you're going to want to do is try to make somebody besides Donovan Mitchell beat you in this game. And if that's the case, you're going to need a good game from guys like Danny Green, Jetty Osmond, if he's able to go. So I think, you know, I think that's a situation where we could see those, you know, six threes from Danny Green in a game. So I'm really interested to see how, that will happen. And I think it's important to bring up him on the defensive end. I thought he did good on the defensive end. And I think one of the reasons why he did good is again, because they were, you know, they were blitzing basically. So Danny green kind of, he did a really good job of being in good position. And that's, you know, what you have to do if you're not involved in the, in the um, trap, I kind of wonder if the Knicks are just going to go a little more ISO heavy uh in the next game and if that does happen can they pick on green so we'll see kind of we should get a good idea pretty soon how danny green's going to be doing in that game just kind of based on how the knicks are playing and lastly i did want to did want to say some things about karis uh as the number one karis levert skeptic on this podcast (laughs) i do want to give him some credit you know uh the lesurgence is real you know um said it there you go. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't even know who came up with that term. Do you do you have any idea, Tony? No, you don't. Uh, That's no. fine. No, I'm not uh, sure. <laughs> um, what I think Karis brought is he kind of brought a different dimension than 
Jetty, we saw in game one, Jetty, you know, setting the screens, moving off ball. When you have Karis LeVert in that role, he's somebody who is actually a really good passer. And it kind of, he's somebody who can beat a four on three with his shot, with getting inside and with getting the bigs involved. And that's something that, you know, Jetty or whoever else, or even Danny Green, they're not able to do as effectively. I think one of the reasons why he was so bad in game one is Karis gets into, if you let, if you put him in a position that allows him to kind of give into his bad habits, he's always going to. And when you're running out there with, he was, he had some lineups where he was out there with Dean Wade and Ricky Rubio, and those lineups weren't generating any spacing. The defense wasn't moving. So Karis LeVert took, took like a step back three, took a couple contested mid-range shots. And that's kind of what happens when you have Karisford out there and the defense isn't moving. We saw when he's out there with more spacing, he's out there with guys that the defense is moving to, adjusting to. He was able to kind of play to his, like kind of stay within himself. And Karis LeVert, when he stays within himself, that's the guy who can, score you know 20 points you can have four or five assists and that's really what we saw so i don't know if again the you know the one for eight game is always lurking behind the corner but i think one of the reasons that he was so good at the end of the regular season was he was kind of he was playing within himself and in a defined role that forced him to take more threes that forced him to play off ball that forced him to make really quick decisions as opposed to just being a ball stopper. So if the Cavs continue to use them in that way, if the Knicks continue to, you know, try to trap, there's a there's a world where you see a more consistent Karis LeVert. So and that's that's what the Cavs need going into game three. They're gonna need those guys to step up. So Karis LeVert is you know, I think we've thrown around Karis LeVert's the X Factor like five hundred times. If you if you Google Karis LeVert X Factor, there's like 33 articles that come up, but he really is the X factor for these games in Madison Square Garden. Great points all around. The Karis Lesurgence has never been more real. Uh, I do have one thing about Danny Green I want to say, and then we'll wrap it up with a very quick rapid fire question here. Uh, I do think uh, to a degree the Knicks were maybe surprised that Danny Green got on the floor just because Mm -hmm. it didn't seem like they did a good job targeting him. Maybe right. they were expecting him, and it was just bad execution. But uh, <laughs> moving forward in this series, uh, I would expect him to be targeted more. I would expect them to try and go at him. And so I'm very interested to see how he holds up. Uh, one thing that I wanted to mention earlier is that they actually put him on Randall for you know various points in the game, mm-hmm. and they let him kind of play. He he grabbed four rebounds. He was in the paint more often. Yep. And when you have a veteran like Danny Green, as we've said a couple times, I mean, he just knows how to play ball. He knows where to be on the defensive end. And if you have good defenders around him, and if you're defending as a unit, maybe it won't really matter if the Knicks target him. Maybe the Cavs will be able to overcome it. That's definitely something to watch moving forward. But Great. as we are an hour into the pod, I want to wrap it up with a very quick rapid-fire question. Uh, we'll start with Adam. Do you think Lamar Stevens gets on the court in New York? Oh, Great question. Um, I'm going to say yes. Uh, or do you mean for game three or game four or just both? Honestly, anyone? either one. Just okay. at any point in New York, yeah. we see a Lamar Stevens. I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say, um, you know, he's 
he's got that scrappy mentality. He, in so many ways, he's been the heart and soul of the team at times. Um, and, you know, they, they wouldn't have the junkyard chain without him. Um, you know, I think that he is a, uh, a nice uh, secret kind of uh, person that you can bring in that you're not necessarily gaming for, but he's another guy that can hit some threes in the corner for you, play excellent defense, and he brings um, the right amount of energy to the court. So I would say yes. And when we're talking about 10, 15 minutes here and there, um, I'd like to see Lamar get that. So I think it's possible. Mm-hmm. Colin, where do you stand on the Lamar Stevens train? Well, Adam and I are big uh, Lamar Stevens fans. I'm actually, so I, uh, fair warning, I actually live in the, the Philly area and Lamar is uh, from this area and he, uh, I know he went to Penn State. So there's a, a lot of people that I am friends with that are aware of him. And I think that Lamar, uh, so we've, we've been Lamar stands for a while. I think that he could get in if, there's an issue with physicality again. We we saw that game one was more physical and the Cavs were having some issues um, kind of dealing with that physicality. And I could see Lamar coming in to really kind of put that presence back in. I've always felt that one thing I really loved about them getting with Donovan Mitchell is that Donovan Mitchell is another guy that you don't mess with on the floor. And, Lamar and Donovan are, I think, I think are really the two guys that other opponents don't, um, they don't want, they just don't want to see that side of them. I think that they are guys that are going to show up and kind of bring it uh, in that physicality angle. And I think that um, Allen and, and uh, Mobley are both fantastic and they are bringing physicality, but there's, there's an extra level that I, I could see maybe the Knicks trying to get to because there's so much pressure on them to win um, that I could see Hartenstein or um, uh, Randall kind of going there. And I could see Lamar getting some minutes at the power forward position just to, to body guys up. Yeah, especially with how game two ended and kind of tempers flaring between the two teams. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, Game three could look a lot different. It could turn into a rock fight. Jackson, how do, how are you feeling about Lamar Stevens? Uh, so, John, our only fan that actually listens all the way through to these podcasts. Please. <laughs> Thank you, John. We know please, you're here. We appreciate job, you. John. <laughs> please, uh, please, like, fast forward the first 30 seconds, the next 30 seconds, so you don't hear what I have to say. Um, I think if Lamar was going to get into a game, he would have gotten into it already. I don't think there's a chance Lamar is going to play. Uh, game one was the game where it's like this team needs that guy. They need that dog, for lack of a better term. Um, and he just didn't get in the game. So I don't I don't think that's the button JB is going to pull push unless things get like really bad. You know, if it's mm-hmm. uh, if it's like if it's like game two, but the Cavs are on the Knicks side, I think that's mm-hmm. JB is going to be like, OK, we got to like we got to throw Lamar in there. But. I think like to switch to push is like, okay, we'll give, you know, if if Brunson's going off, for example, I think that's more of going to be what the issue is in a game like that. And I think it's just like, we're going to lean more heavily on Isaac Okoro and lean, lean less on Jetty and Danny Green. So I don't, I just don't think, I just don't think he's going to get out there. That's fair. I think, you know, I was surprised that he didn't get in at the end of game two, considering there was a little bit of garbage time for him to get in. Although to be fair, 
with the Allen and Randall situation, maybe putting Lamar Stevens in there would have been, you know, ex- uh, escalating things. I don't know. But uh, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if Lamar Stevens doesn't play. But I also think, as Adam and Colin have mentioned, it's kind of just one of those like secret weapons you can put out there if you feel like you need a five minute burst out of someone who's going to get a little physical attack the glass maybe just like you know because if the Cavs come out sleepwalking which I wouldn't expect them to do in at this point in the playoffs but if there is a game where you know you need someone to rile them up maybe it's a Lamar Stevens night maybe he Mm -hmm. takes home the junkyard dog chain in the playoffs we'll see but uh this is gonna wrap it up for this episode oh go ahead one last take from Jackson if he gets on the floor he will get the junkyard dog chain it doesn't matter winner winner this is what we've been saying all year (laughs) he touches the floor it says JP Lamar Stevens is the more. the league leader in per 36 minutes junkyard dog winners. Uh, every time he <laughs> yes. gets out there, he gets it. <laughs> nice. But uh, that's going to do it for this episode of the Junkyard Pod. We appreciate everyone for listening, uh, especially John. Uh, give it a like and subscribe. Massive thank you to Colin and Adam for joining us today. Go check them, go check them out. Cavaliers Basketball Club podcast. And as always, go Cavs. I agree. Go Cavs. Yep. Go Cavs. <laughs>